Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is episode 33. And today we're going to be talking about facing our cultural ideologies and narratives. And what does that mean for us as the church? Let's do this. Hey, thank you guys so much for joining us today. And we are recording in probably the nicest room we've ever been in. We are recording this at the CBOQ Assembly. We are at the Hilton in Mississauga, and we're having an amazing time right now. And today we have a very special guest. Pastor, church planter, author, professor, called by a prophet by many, and Asian, that's a lot of experiences <laughs> and levels of engagement right there. Reverend Dr. Sung Chan Ra, how are you? Good. I'm pretty excited to be in Toronto on, on the aftermath of the day after the championships. So. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> I just assumed that all that celebration was because you were coming into town and the fireworks. That's what I thought. I said, I thought, wow, yeah. Toronto really knows how to welcome somebody. Yes. But no, it was that the, happens for the presence of the Lord has come with you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We got Shu and Bernard here as always. How are you guys doing? All right. Yeah. Go Raps. Go Raps. And special host. You have heard him here on this podcast before. Paul Lamb, what's going on? Very happy to be here. Yes. Let's do this. I'm excited for our conversation today. Dr. Sunshin Ra, as you introduce yourself a little bit, can you also share with us a little bit about what has been your experience as an Asian American as well? Sure. Well, it's good to be on here. Thank you for the the very kind invitation. I teach at North Park Theological Seminary, and uh, I teach in the area of church growth and evangelism, which at a small seminary means you teach pretty much anything and everything that they tell you to teach. So (laughs) I've taught in areas of leadership. I've taught in areas of church ministry, uh, areas of justice and multicultural ministry, evangelism, church planning, etc. Those are kind of the areas that I teach in. Uh, But I was also a pastor for 17 years. So Mm -hmm. I come out of the experience of being a pastor, but also having been in the academy for the last 13 years. So that's where I, I kind of speak out of that experience of someone who's been in pastoral ministry, but also who's kind of studied it from more of an academic space. But also as an Asian American, Asian North American, I was born in Korea, but came to the U.S. Uh, right after my sixth birthday. Okay. So I've been in the U.S. now for 45 years. I, I identify myself as an American, uh, but as someone from Korean ancestry, so I identify as a Korean American. And the very unique cultural, social, psychological makeup that it makes. Theological, <laughs> ecclesial as well. That, For sure. Yeah, my theology, my ecclesiology is shaped by my setting and my context. And growing up in an immigrant church shaped who I am. Being saved and, and uh, receiving Christ as my Savior in the context of a Korean Baptist church in the U.S. is very formative. And yet I was involved with InnoVarsity as a college student and um, the ways that InnoVarsity was very sensitive to Asian American dynamics and, and cultural sensitivity. And I was a uh, uh, able to participate in that as a student, having pastored in a ethnic church, an immigrant church, mm-hmm. having pastored a multi-ethnic church, and church planted as a multi-ethnic church planter, those are experiences that have given me a you know just great experiences in kind of the wide cross section of ministry that is uniquely Korean, Korean American, Asian, Asian North American, but also uh, kind of Western Christianity and global Christianity kind of rolled in. So I love visiting Canada and Toronto and Vancouver, two cities that I really enjoy because what I study and what I've lived and what I've experienced as a pastor and as a professor, I see 
right in front of me when, when, when I walk around the city and when I see the churches. Uh, nice. What I've been kind of working on in terms of diversity and cross-cultural ministry and Asian American ministries, you see it embodied in very real ways in places like Toronto and Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's awesome. I didn't even realize you had been doing campus ministry. Yeah. Is there anything you haven't done? <laughs> uh, children's ministry. Children's uh, ministry. I said that that's the one thing if you're, you know, I'm a public speaker, so I usually don't get nervous. I am terrified if you put me in front of five-year-olds or six-year-olds, I will freak out. <laughs> I, I echo that. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should just say yet. I don't know. Maybe well, God would call you and be. just supernaturally gift you for it. Not happening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things that we did want to kind of start off with, 10 years ago, you wrote a book. It was called The Next Evangelicalism, mm-hmm. Releasing the Church from Western Cultural Captivity. And it was huge. It was a wake-up call. I think a lot of people resonated with your book and the things you were saying in it. You know, you were definitely poking at something that had not been really articulated in that way for quite a while. Can you... Talk a little bit about, you know, what were your memories of hmm. engaging in that topic? You, you mentioned so many things in that book <laughs> about what and how you defined Western cultural captivity. Yeah, so yeah. what were some of your memories of engaging in that area? Well, just a, maybe a few anecdotes on that. The first is the title of the book, The Next Evangelicalism. I don't know if you know this, but if you talk to most authors, they will tell you that most authors do not choose the title of their books. And there's some statistic, like 99% of the authors don't get the title of their really? books. So the original title of the book that I proposed when I sent the proposal was called The White Captivity of the Church. Wow. One publisher just flat out rejected it. <laughs> so we're not taking this book at all. Forget the title. I don't see how that's offensive. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. In America. <laughs> InterVarsity Press was very gracious, so we think the ideas are there. We'll take the book. And then my editor, actually, Al Shi, Chinese-American, and we talked about it quite a bit and said, you know, we want this to get broad readership. We want people to actually read the book. (laughs) And suggested the next evangelicalism as a nice continuation of the ideas of the next Christendom, which was a very popular book at that time, which was Mm -hmm. looking at diversity on the global scale. Now, actually, Philip Jenkins ended up, the author of that book, ended up endorsing my book. I've met him and we've become friends. Uh, But it felt like a nice kind of a sequel and a next step from what the next Christendom was talking about, which is global Christianity is diverse. The face of Christianity throughout the world is changing. And my uh, thesis was that's happening in the Western culture, specifically U.S., but also in Canada, Mm -hmm. where Christianity and particularly evangelicalism in in North America is moving from a white middle class or upper middle class, suburban, Republican, iconic, you know, image of that. That's what a Christian is in America to much more maybe urban, certainly more diverse, inclusive of African-Americans, Latinos, Mm -hmm. Asian Americans, ethnically diverse, socioeconomically diverse, uh, certainly more urban than it has been in the past. So this was a very exciting moment for me to say, we're at a cusp of of, an important, exciting moment of of church history. Unfortunately, at that time, people weren't recognizing it. 10, 15 years ago, when I started writing the book, they weren't recognizing that Christianity, not just globally, but in North America, was beginning to change. What's interesting is, um, I think I wrote the book, 13 years ago, it got published 11 years ago. The themes now are making sense to a lot of people. Yes. <laughs> 10 years later, yes. people are saying, oh, we see it now. <laughs> yes, look how diverse Toronto is. Look yes. how diverse Chicago is. Look how diverse New York is. And 
especially over the last 10, 15 years, where we've been tracking the decline of white Christianity in America. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been sharp. It's been precipitous. And then simultaneous to that has been the increase and rise of immigrant churches, yeah, ethnic right, churches, yeah. multi-ethnic churches. So what I talked about 10, 15 years ago is now coming into fruition 10 years later. Sure. So that's been kind of exciting to see that maybe my book was 10 years ahead <laughs> where yeah. I was talking about these it's things prophetic. are happening. It's prophetic. Yeah, yeah. these yeah. things are happening. And now we see it in full force in the U.S. and North America in, in 2019. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And one of the things I really appreciated is your hope for the book was always for reform. Yeah. It wasn't criticism. It wasn't uh, a sense of just ranting, but that, that there was a hope that churches and the way we exist as churches wouldn't just be taken at face value. Yeah. And that, you know, even if we see massive churches, we can't just assume that, oh, that is a church that is necessarily healthy or has it been invaded by ideologies that have caused it to be really, really big. And you talked about things like individualism, consumerism and materialism and racism and how those things have, you know, impacted churches Mm -hmm. and perhaps led to some churches being massive, but you know, you, you didn't take it just at face value and just celebrate it, but like you're, you kind of like dive deeper into it. And I really appreciated that. And I think that speaks a lot, especially as you mentioned right now, of us kind of thinking about what are the next steps for us. I had a professor, Alan Roxburgh, mm-hmm. and he would talk about very similar things the, about the entanglement of the Eurocentric church mm-hmm. in, in actually all of the ethnic immigrant churches that have come yeah. around. And I, I'm interested to know your thoughts. In our class, one time he was saying, in this context today in North America, there is this untangling uh, of the Eurocentric church. And I asked, well, well, what about the Chinese church? What mm. about the Asian church? And he's like, well, you guys are just a part of that as mm. well, the, the <laughs> colonial impulse that has happened within that. Mm. So I'm curious to know how you feel that that fits within the, the narrative at play within all the uh, yeah. ethnic immigrant churches. That's a great question. One historical angle would be that Mark Noll takes this position, historian in Notre Dame, that some of the growth, particularly in Korea, so this is Korea, not Korean-Americans, that the growth of the church in Korea is because there were similar sociological realities in Korea that mirrored the growth of the evangelical church in the United States in the 60s and 70s. Interesting. Uh, rapid mm. industrialization had already occurred. The economic boom was happening, so that a growing middle and upper middle class was developing in Korea. More urbanization. Because of these factors that were very similar to the growth of evangelicals in the 70s, you saw the growth of evangelical Christianity in Korea. Mm. So one social historical angle would be, yeah, the, some of the growth in places like Korea, maybe even some places like Southeast Asia now, like uh, Singapore, where you're seeing these mega churches in places yep. like Singapore, that could be a mirror to the similar socio-historical realities in the U.S. at the height of evangelicalism. That goes back to the materialism, consumerism question, mm. that there are some aspects of evangelicalism, particularly around the megachurch, that has strong materialistic, consumeristic bent to them. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so if you are developing a culture that has high consumer materialistic values, like in the U.S. in the 70s and 80s, you're going to develop churches that meet that need. And that's why these churches are going to grow, but particularly along, along those narratives of consumerism and materialism and individualism. And was there a similar thing that was happening in like the mega churches in Korea? Yeah. Expanding consumerism, capitalism, 
they're looking for churches that meet that need, and the megachurches are meeting that need. Mm-hmm. And so uh, did that spillover? So it's a both and. It's the spillover of the way the Korean churches in Korea grew, materialism and consumerism, and the reality of the church systems in America, which were also consumer material driven. So I would say that there is very much a danger of captivity of non-white churches to white Christianity. Uh, And I wrote about that in Next Evangelicalism. And I think the sixth chapter I talk about some of the best purveyors of Western Christianity now are non-Western communities. The churches in Korea with this kind of hyper-materialism. Many Asian American churches that are following some pattern. And, you know, I'll I'll say it in kind of a cynical way and then I hope maybe in a so so helpful way. way. The cynical way is that, you know, if you look at our foods, Asian foods, and I'm not talking about the great flavors we have. We have great flavor. But we need a carrier of that flavor, right? So rice and tofu carries our flavors. But in and of themselves, they're not flavor, right? I mean, rice is not flavor. You add flavor to it. (laughs) Tofu is not flavor. You add flavor to it. So in some sense, Asian American culture is reflective of that. We're rice and tofu. So we can absorb other kind of flavors fairly well. (laughs) So that's why sometimes we are really good at adapting what's out there in the world and making a pretty good dish out of it, right? So, I mean, another example would be K-pop. I mean, here you have a, a quintessential American boy band type of, you know, flavor. And they've added to, you know, Korean, you know, uh, group of five Korean boys and made it into a whole new pop sensation. You know, you've seen, you see that in a lot of different places where Asian culture and Asian North American culture is fairly adaptive to be able to take on the flavors around us. So you can look at that in a couple of ways. One, I do think that can be problematic if we are too adaptive and we lose our identity in the process. Yeah. We lose the character of who we are. You play around with tofu, it becomes a smoothie, you know, so, you know, and then it stops being tofu, <laughs> you know, so uh, when does tofu stop being tofu when you make it into a smoothie? So that's what I would wanting to be sensitive to. But I also am aware that part of Asian culture is, is, is our adaptability. And so I write about, um, for Asian Americans, maybe the corrective is for us to claim our multiple cultural identity rather than being subsumed under another one. So I think Alan Roxford is right. The immigrant churches, and especially second and third generation immigrants, have the high danger or perspective of being subsumed under the dominant culture. And I think Asians are probably more noted for something like that. But can we identify as multiple consciousness, triple consciousness is what I write about, uh, multiple identity so that we're not losing some of our Asian identity in this process? I looked at the Hellenists as a Hebrew and the Greek culture. That's right. That's and right. they were always the people, the bridge. That's right. The rest of the Roman culture. That's right. right. Yeah, and the Hebrews right. themselves could not reach the rest of the population. That's right. But the Hellenists, them, that's right. they were crucial to the mission of the gospel. That's right. I think the key to the, um, the future of the Asian North American church is this uh, 1.5 generation, as we, we've called it, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the first generation, which it's actually not accurate sociologically, but the way we use it in the church is the first generation is the immigrant generation. So, our parents who yeah. came to the U.S., you know, and couldn't speak the language well, but 
got like the blue collar jobs so they can send us to the Ivy League schools and to <laughs> seminary and they worked hard and we become more assimilated and we're more second generation. But then there's a group that's like 1.5 who came to the US maybe when they were 10, 11, 12 years old, who grew up in their Asian context in Asia, but also adapted fairly quickly to uh, North American identity. And so they have that kind of bicultural reality. And so they're the translators. They're the ones that you're talking about who can translate both. And if you look at it theologically in terms of the scripture, where the church grew is when there was the healthy intersection of Jewish and Hellenist culture. Like you had to have both hands. Uh, this is the theory of Rodney Stark, who talks about the growth of the church in the first 300 years. Mm-hmm. A lot of his writing reveals it was both the very uh, wonderful tribal relational culture of Judaism, but also the primary, uh, the secondary uh, mass-produced culture of Roman, the Roman Empire that together made it possible for the church to grow. And I would say that, um, and this is my work on this, that the intersection of what I call primary culture, which is more of our parents' culture, the immigrant church's culture, much more relational, much more group dynamic, much more Confucianist, you know, kind mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, the community and the family is priority. And then the second generation, which is uh, more kind of similar into U.S. culture or North American culture, maybe a little more individualistic, but also more technologically savvy, more aware of what's going on in the world around us. You bring that together, you have a capacity to operate within both of these worlds, which is something that other people groups might not have. The closest parallel I found is within U.S. Hispanic Americans who operate in this very similar context of parents are first generation, they have much more relational, they have kind of a primary culture, they're in the world that is much more white, European, Western culture, but they create a world that is a mixture of both cultures. They translate between the immigrant community and the Western community, Western culture. And the 1.5 generation can do that as well. We translate between the immigrant community and the second generation, third mm. generation. And in doing that, we're actually creating a third culture or a triple consciousness identity that actually makes us better servants because we're able to do that kind of language and cultural translation. I'm kind of curious, like, as you're describing that, I'm, I'm actually really excited because that's something I've been wrestling with for a long time because I'm seeing that bridge culture yeah. needed to, yeah. to kind of to help facilitate the movements. Um, But I'm just kind of curious, like, have you seen some of this in action? And what does that kind of look like? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the the more dynamic multi-ethnic churches are people who have what I call triple consciousness. And triple consciousness is the ability to move within three different identities. It comes from Du Bois's work, African-American sociologist, who called it double consciousness for black Americans. The movement between majority white culture and African-American culture, and then code switching is what we call it now, between those two. Latinos and Asians have triple consciousness, the ability to move between majority white culture, their parents' immigrant culture, and then this third culture, which is the mixture of the two. Mm -hmm. Around this table, most of us are triple consciousness people. What I found is that some of the most successful multi-ethnic churches are pastored by triple consciousness people. 
whether they're African-American because they've moved to multiple cultures or Asian-American or even Caucasian-Americans who have operated under multiple settings. And sometimes they're MKs because they grew up in a white family or a American, white American family, but they lived in Bangladesh. And so they know what it's like to move in different cultures. They have a cultural sensitivity that someone who is monocultural does not have. And so I think for many Asian-Americans, Asian-North Americans, this, is, this actually kind of comes naturally to us. We grew up in that. We grew up with having to translate what our parents did to our friends, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not abnormal to wear socks with slippers. Really? Right. So I, I mentioned this last night. Kim's Convenience is my favorite show on television right now. Kim's Convenience. Because, you know, you see that cultural dynamic yeah. of this first-generation appa, this first-generation parent, and the children trying to translate and interpret their actions to their friends. Now, that's why he does things this way. That's why mom does this things this way. Mama does this things this way. So when you do that, it becomes uh, a part of your capacity to move between different cultures because you're constantly doing it. And so that's where I've seen churches that have a triple consciousness pastor do very well because they can relate to not just one group, a majority white culture, or another group, immigrant Korean culture, they can relate to second-generation Latinos. Mm -hmm. They can re relate to uh, African-Americans coming out of the historic black church into more of a hip-hop church. And I've seen, you know, m my denomination is the Evangelical Covenant Church, which really did a lot of work in planting multi-ethnic churches. Some of the more successful multi-ethnic churches have been pastored by younger multicultural, triple-consciousness people, the Eugene Cho's of the world, the Ephraim Smith's of the world, uh, Peter Hong, uh, Gideon Sang. Uh, these are names of, of, of uh, people of color who grew up in triple-consciousness identity and are now pastoring out of that. And because of that, you see this diversity in their church and, and congregants being gravitating, gravitating towards that because this is what they see in their pastor. Wow, that's big. That's a lot to chew on. And, and I, you know, I'll just follow up with Bernard's question is, over the last 10 years, and you mentioned a number of examples, for these leaders to be able to, in a way, lead the church to embody what you've been talking about, what are some of the practical ways, and maybe if you can, like share some of the, the challenges you've seen at trying to break away from some of these ideologies and this captivity especially because i'm sure a lot of people who are listening feel maybe stuck yes in, yes in, in where they're at in their absolutely you know specific church they, they agree to it and they yeah. want it and they desire it but i think they're they're lacking kind of the roadmap on yeah. how does that actually play out because yeah. yeah. it's scary because yes. you don't you don't know what it yeah. looks like on the other side yeah right? I'll propose a theory that I've been working on that will be in my next book, and then I'll propose the more practical on-the-ground yeah. way of maybe making that work. The theory comes from some work that was done in sociology in the 1960s and 70s, but I think it still is kind of relevant for today. It's the work of uh, uh, Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman, who talk about the way social reality is formed and created. There are three levels out of which social reality is formed. There's kind of the individual level, which is how individuals shape a social system. There's the structural level, where structures and systems are built to help that social reality. Mm -hmm. And the third level is what I call, what they call internalization, what I call narratives and ideologies. So you have all three levels at work that help form churches, school systems, governments, etc. Evangelical Christianity, because of our hyper-individualism, we tend to focus on individual changing the system. 
So those three levels are where change occurs. So we say we get the individual to come and change the system. Mm. The way we do this is say, let's hire the perfect senior pastor. Let's hire the perfect worship leader. The unicorn. Let's hire, yes, the unicorn. <laughs> the, the, the African-American who can sing hymns and gospel music and will conjure up other African-Americans to come to our church. Yes. <laughs> I call that the magic minority. Multi-ethnic churches are looking for the magic minority to come and conjure up other minorities. So that's the belief that an individual can change. Now, that can happen, but that's not the only way. Right. And then we've had folks who've said, well, we've got to change the system and structure. Mm -hmm. Tear the system down, change the structure, tear it all down, build it back up again with new systems and structure. Now, both are actual truths. Both are ways to change the system. Single-handedly, they can't. You have to do both and. But it's the third one that I think has been the one that we've ignored or had trouble addressing the most, which is the narrative, ideology. What have we internalized? The Mm -hmm. stories, the narratives, Mm -hmm. the ideologies, the philosophies, the theologies that actually, if they were dysfunctional, end up leading to difficult and challenging models of ministry. So if we have internalized and embedded within our ideology and narrative and worldview, this idea of consumerism as the best way to do church, no matter how many individuals you bring in who can make that happen, you've created a dysfunctional system. Even if you throw out the whole elder board and you bring in a new system, the narrative of consumerism in place, it's going to build a consumeristic church. So these narratives are actually one of the places, it's one, I think, one of the more critical pieces to change, but it's also the most difficult to identify because... Mm -hmm. You can bring in a new person with new ideas, but if they have the same narrative as before, you're going to rebuild the system. Yep. You can mm-hmm. tear everything down and say, we don't do elders anymore. We only do you know, congregation models. But if the narrative is still there, you'll rebuild that system. So mm. um, that's what I've been kind of, I guess, obsessed with these days. <laughs> How do you change the narrative? Mm. How do you change the stories that are told that actually make the system operate the way it does, or individuals in the system operate the way they do. So you don't just bring in an individual to change it. You don't just change the system. You've got to change the narratives underneath. So I'll give you two ways. One is, again, a negative. You can't change the narrative by promoting more than the same narrative. Right. The best example I heard of this is the One campaign. I don't know if you had it in Canada, but in the U.S. you had this massive launched at the Super Bowl. It was a big story. Bono, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Tom <laughs> Hanks, all the A-listers got on TV and said, we're going to help the Red Campaign, which was a campaign to address the HIV AIDS pandemic yeah. in Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. They spent 10 years and $10 million on this ad campaign. They netted zero dollars. Really? After 10 years, they made 10 million, which is what they put in. Zero dollars. Really? Wow. No money went towards HIV AIDS pandemic in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, why is that a problem? Because why is there a problem of the HIV AIDS pandemic in sub-Saharan Africa? It's not because there isn't a cure, so to speak. There kind of is a cure. How do I know this? Because I'm a fan of Magic Johnson. And when I remember hearing that Magic Johnson was HIV AIDS positive, mm-hmm. my first thought, as many of us, he's dead. Yeah. Six months, a year if he's lucky. Yeah. 25 years later, he's not only alive, he's actually looking a little chunky. I mean, so he's, you know, he's healthy and living 25 years sure. because we have a way to address the HIV AIDS pandemic. Right. So the problem is not more research for the cure, though that's a good thing to do. The problem is the greed of the pharmaceutical companies and the materialism of the share owners of the pharmaceutical companies that says charge the same for someone in Africa the same thing you're going to charge Magic Johnson's insurance company. Wow. So it's a problem with greed and materialism. Mm. Now, what did the Red Campaign do? The Red Campaign asked you to buy red products to address the HIV AIDS pandemic in sub-Saharan Africa. Right. Right. So buy a red iPod. Buy a red 
T-shirt from Target, buy red tagged uh, Levi's jeans. So even though the red campaign made zero dollars, who made the money? Levi's, Apple, and, and Target made gobs and gobs of money <laughs> to, uh, to promoting this so-called campaign for HIV-AIDS pandemic. So the question is, you were trying to address the HIV-AIDS pandemic with more materialism and consumerism, which is the problem in the first place, mm. right? What caused this problem of HIV-AIDS pandemic and not addressing it in sub-Saharan Africa? The materialism and consumerism and greed of the pharmaceutical companies. And you generated a campaign that fed into that narrative. Mm. And instead of solving the problem, you exasperated the problem. Wow. So that's where sometimes we come into a setting and we say, all right, we want to change the church. And there's pressure. You've got to deal with what the elders say. You've got to deal with your congregation. You've got to deal with parents who say, why aren't my kids coming to church anymore? And the first answer is, well, let's build a consumeristic model that's going to meet everybody's needs as quickly as possible. Give them what they want. Give them what mm -hmm. they want. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it feeds into the narrative that created the problem in the first yeah. place. And now, even though you say you tore down the system, even though a new individual has come in, you end up not changing anything because the narrative goes on its merry way. I was wondering, the immigrant church, yeah. we can also be fed by consumerism because mm -hmm. we're looking to be with people that are like us. Yeah. yeah. And when you talk about the neighborhood ministry, yeah. and the neighborhood people would say, maybe you're living above place yeah. to go to your immigrant church. And so for me, who goes to an immigrant church, who's in the English ministry, I can go to other churches. Yeah. I struggle with, what does that look like? Is that faithful presence? to go to an immigrant church for someone like me. Mm. Our immigrant church is living above place. Mm. So I'm struggling with these realities, and I wanted to hear what your thoughts are about that. Yeah. So my provost at North Park University is Michael Emerson, who's done some incredible writing on multi-ethnic churches, sociologists, good friend, and brilliant academic. He wrote a book called United by Faith a few years ago. Excellent book. Uh, it was the follow-up to Divided by Faith, which was also an excellent mm. work about kind of the sociology of multi-ethnic churches or the lack thereof. And Michael wrote, in, uh, along with his co-authors, wrote, whenever possible, all churches should be multi-ethnic. And most people picked up on that but left the first part out whenever possible and just believe all churches should be multi-ethnic. I actually don't believe that, and neither does Michael. I, we don't believe that all churches are, should be forced to be multi-ethnic. Mm. There still is a need for the immigrant mm -hmm. church, for the ethnic-specific yeah. church. There yes. still is a need for that. And part of that is the reality of power dynamics. So I'll give you a couple examples. One example is my mom. She's 85 years old. You know, she worked in an inner city uh, carryout, one of those kind of um, fast food places in, in the inner city. Yeah, she was a single mom trying to raise four kids, so she took whatever job she could take. So every day for six days a week, she spoke in a different language. She was, you know, mm. completely different culture. And she was a servant to everyone. You know, she was, a, uh, you know, but on Sunday, she was a leader. On Sunday, she was a deacon and a prayer warrior for the mm -hmm. church, a spiritual leader. So for me to go to her and say, Mom, I believe in the multi-ethnic church. You need to go to a multi-ethnic church now would be completely, you know, would be, would be wrong. Would be, you know, for that couldn't, I'm a son. I'm not, I'm not, you, know, you don't say that to your mom. Right. But you know, that, that, would, that wouldn't work because she needs that space because six days out of the week, she was told she was less than. Her identity as a Korean-American woman was diminished because she was a servant to everybody. 
And then one day a week, her identity as a Korean-American woman made in the image of God was affirmed in her church. Why would I take that away from her? And so if society were at a place where everybody's equal, where all cultures are affirmed, and all people could find dignity within society, I would say, yeah, we could be multi-ethnic in every single church. But that's not what's happening. So when you have a recent immigrant who every day is put down, put down, put down, every day is told you're not wanted here, every day is told you don't belong here, you need one day a week to go to be told you belong here. And so that's where the church could provide that role. So if I thought society was such, at such a place where everybody was affirmed in their racial, ethnic, cultural identity, then I would say we don't need racial, ethnic, cultural specific churches. But that's not the case. So the need for the immigrant church is not because of the shortcomings of the immigrants in the church. It's the shortcomings of society at large. What about the Asian American church yeah, another, that's another level. That's but, another level. Yeah. So yeah. that's interesting to me because I do believe the Asian American church is kind of in this really interesting middle space right now, mm-hmm. right? So we're, more, we're kind of like in the teenage young adult stage, both in terms of demographics, but also in terms of the growth of the church, right? Sure. So the, the Asian American community is at a place trying to find its own identity and its place in the world, right? So initially we had inherited an identity from the first generation, And that makes sense, right? Our Korean identity, our Chinese identity, we inherited that. But then as we go out into the world, we encounter these other influences, our education, our seminary education, our other churches and denominations that we're part of. We encounter kind of a larger world. And certainly now with social media, mass communication, you're listening to podcasts and sermons and YouTube sermons from people from all over. So you're getting an exposure outside of the kind of the small world of the immigrant community. So the world is getting larger and larger. And so a lot of it is for the second generation trying to find our place. And it's got to be kind of, I think, an in-between space. And so that's, it's not necessarily a power dynamic, but it's certainly a cultural dynamic. So I would argue that the first generation has a very acute need to have their own immigrant communities, language and culture mm-hmm. being chief among them. So second generation, maybe you don't have the language barrier, but you still have a cultural barrier. You still have a sociological barrier where you don't quite feel like you are a part of larger society. Now, that's what I mean, but we're kind of in this adolescent, young adult stage because some are ready to move to kind of the majority culture, uh, and others are wanting to stay much more. So to me, I, it's a both-and rather than a, an a, uh, either-or. It's got to be a both-and. Because we're in that kind of in-between stage, you, you care for the people who are in that in-between stage in different ways. There are some people who need the safety, comfort, and the protection of a single ethnic community for a number of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And there are those who are ready to kind of venture forward into outside of that community. I don't see one as being evil and bad and the other being good and perfect. I don't see one as being immature and the other being immature. I think they're both seeking the heart of God and the the presence of God. So we need the both and rather than seeing this as a kind of a either or type of argument. I would say that for me, as, a, as, a, as someone who's more in kind of the Christianity at large now, I, I found that my confidence to be in Christianity at large in cross-cultural setting, it came from the affirmation of my Korean identity in the immigrant church. I've been really blessed to have multiple communities cross-culturally that have significantly blessed me. My doctoral program, my main mentors were African-American. And more, my next book is co-authored with a Native American. I've had some great, great mentoring from Native American professors nice. and, and friends. 
my first doctorate was with uh, two Latino professors. And, so, and of course, I've had white professors all of my life. <laughs> but uh, in my academic and ministry, I've, I've had the real gift of being able to be mentored and led by African Americans, Native Americans, Latinos, and, and Asian Americans, and, and, and Caucasian Americans. I don't think I would have had the confidence to walk into a black church if I hadn't known that I was pretty secure in my Korean American Christian identity, mm-hmm. right? So I think this is something that gets lost, that sometimes the confidence to go into a cross-cultural setting means that you're secure in who, the way God has made you, mm-hmm. and that's why you can walk into that setting. And that doesn't happen overnight. That happens when you are in immigrant churches that says, it's okay that the kitchen smells like kimchi. You know, it's not an evil thing. <laughs> Two, fridges. <laughs> Two fridges. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, it's okay to have these kind of customs that are unique. That's the way God has made you. So that when I walk into an African-American church and I see unique customs there, I'm not going to judge because that's the context that I grew up in. So one of the best things that I think we can do in terms of the multicultural, cross-cultural conversation is to have a deeper and better sense of the way God has made us. And mm-hmm. that can oftentimes happen in the immigrant church. And I've seen this, in fact, one of my African-American colleagues, Vince Bantu, who teaches at Fuller now, one of his main things he says is for white folks, white folks, you've got to learn about your own culture because you keep thinking like you don't have a culture. Now, that's a, <laughs> that's a power play, by the way. That, that can actually, it's, not, it's not intentional, but that can be a power play. Sure. It's like, oh, I don't have a culture, so I get to learn your culture, when actually you do have a culture, you're just not talking about it. Yeah. So it's ambiguous, and it's, it's also uh, monolithic, and it's also hidden, and that has a power to it because you're not identifying it as white culture. And so if it's unidentifiable, it's actually normative. So when we identify Asian culture, what's unique about it, we're giving the power to say, yeah, this is normal. This is not out of the normal. And so by giving ourselves an adjective or describer, we give ourselves an identity that God has given to us. But for example, white culture doesn't give itself an adjective or describer. Mm -hmm. I I talk about this in theology. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing that they teach in seminary called white theology. Right, they call, they have classes for black theology. Wow. They have classes for liberation theology, <laughs> sure, minjung sure. theology, feminist theology. Every theology that is not white, they have an adjectival describer describer mm. for. White theology is just theology. Now think <laughs> about the power that is at play there. Yeah. Well, so I, yeah. I, I think I think that's and what I've wrestled with, and you know, not to name names or denominations, <laughs> but that's like almost white theology is is aligned with that's biblical yeah normal yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's biblical and i'm like what what so i wonder what a bigger gospel imagination towards self-awareness understanding your identity understanding the different consciousness yeah what would that look like and i think that would really go back to yourself and you'd be like what what is am i being more aware of who i am that god's made me to be going deeper into those cultural roots into the you know and then hopefully being formed and what is what does that look like what is God doing in a, that particular, you know, culture or my yeah. tradition where I'm coming from. Mm. Yeah. And that, that I think is so important, but we don't have time for that on a, yeah. <laughs> on a Sunday or like in a yeah. Sunday's, whatever, Christian ed class or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's where some of the positive examples are ways that you can, and like, you know, when I was a pastor for, for, for a decade plus, I looked for sermon illustrations that would do what you're, what you're describing, which is to offer kind of counterexamples to the norm, right? Mm-hmm. So I know, you know, having pastored and visited a lot of churches, that our congregants 
are already getting a lot of influences outside of your your preaching or your influence. Absolutely. Right? I mean, you know, I, this is more so in the U.S., but what I know of American congregations is that their theology comes more from Fox News than from their preacher. <laughs> Fox, Fox News is on four to five hours a day. They they maybe listen to their preacher 20 minutes a year. Isn't a, a Fox week. News the voice of God? <laughs> yeah, well, that's... that's you, know, you will not believe how many conferences I've been to where people will quote me back Fox News and Glenn Beck. Wow. And, oh, and, wow. and like, you know, say kind of, you know, you're, you're not speaking God's word because, you're, so, you know, that's, again, maybe it's more American, but that's, that's definitely a U.S. type of thing. So I'm very much aware that most of our congregants are getting their theology probably not from the pastor. They're getting it from other places. Right. So this is the narratives we're coming up against. We're coming right. up against these narratives of Fox News, some of the maybe more male patriarchal type of Christianity that's out there, uh, some of the more Eurocentric without any sensitivity to global Christianity that's out there. So that's where, even for those 20, 30 minutes, however long you preach, you could actually offer an an alternative to that. So one of the ways that I did that in my church, and this is not going back 12, 13 years, is I would talk about my experiences of working in inner city Boston. I had the tremendous honor of working with some African-American churches in, in, in confronting gang violence in, in the city of Boston. And so I would, you know, an illustration would be, hey, you know, this past week, uh, uh, Ray Hammond and I, he's the president of the Ten Point Coalition, African-American pastor of Bethel AME, we were riding around in a police car uh, and we went to meet up with some gang youth and I would tell that story. And the church would be interested in that and they'd say, oh, wow, you know, this is what our pastor is doing that tells a different story. He's being mentored by an African-American pastor, going out into the streets of Boston and ministering to uh, at-risk youth. In fact, one of the other things we did was to demonstrate that Ray and Gloria Hammond dedicated our daughter. Mm-hmm. And so you have an African-American couple coming in, and they're the godparents of our yeah. daughter. And um, an African-American couple dedicated my son. And so whether it's sermon illustrations or something visual up front that shows this is what the church is about, this is what happens in a church. Sure. So maybe it's also kind of fair to say that begins with us yeah as yeah. leaders and pastors and uh, influencers yeah. In, yeah. Our, in our church culture that unless we are experiencing yeah. this yeah and practicing it yeah. like it's almost like it won't because we won't translate it. we perpetuate the narrative yeah right yeah if right. all your let's you know if every person you cite and you know i i, I like these men so i'm not like them in particular but what i found <laughs> over and over again is asian american pastors the holy triumvirate is tim keller John Piper, and I forgot who the third guy is, but another white guy. <laughs> you know, oh, if, I, if I hear another Asian-American pastor quote, you know, at least one sermon, at least one of those three is quoted in every single sermon I hear. Now, again, I, I know Tim Keller. I, I appreciate his work. I've met John. You know, these are good men. I just think we can get our illustrations a little broadly than those three sure. men who, Matt Chandler is the third person. So, you know, you've got these three white male reform guys who, you know, every Asian pastor is quoting all the time. This is where we can start setting different examples. Now, what sure. that means is we've got to read more. <laughs> we've got to listen to other people talking. Uh, and, you know, it would have been worse if I had said, oh, I just, you know, I just called Ray Hammond. I'd never met him before, but he's going to come and dedicate my daughter. You know, that would have been weird. But, you know, Ray and Gloria, we're family friends for you know for several several years, sure. and you know Ray was my mentor for several several years. So it was there was a legitimacy in doing that, but that took five, six, seven, eight years of a relationship to legitimately say Ray and Gloria are dedicating our daughter. Um, so that does start with the pastor to say what are the friendships that you have, what are the relationships that you have that you do bring into the church and demonstrate to the church. 
Hey, thank you guys so much for joining us today and listening in. That's a lot to digest and to continue to work through in your community. So we'd love to hear from you. What is your feedback in regards to the ideologies that have impacted us? How do we free ourselves of that captivity? Let us know. You can contact us through Facebook or email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate and review and subscribe and share this podcast with other people. It really helps this conversation get out there. Once again, you have been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.